You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. What's really interesting is that the history of Seattle really like helps us understand how we got to this place. Seattle's growth is bringing a physical and cultural transformation like never before. Buildings are changing, businesses are changing, and people are changing at a rapid pace. I am Jeff Shulman, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast features three expert opinions on how policies from Seattle's past are shaping the migration patterns of today, which will influence Seattle's future. This third season of Seattle Growth Podcast has been examining the physical transformation of our city. How much is our city changing? Who's driving the changes? How do these changes affect people, and how are people influencing the changes? In last week's episode, The focus was on some of the people who are moving out of our transforming city. You heard from the director of the Seattle's Office of Planning and Community Development, Sam Asefa. So the economic gap and disparity is the biggest worry, and it has sort of multiple manifestations of that. You also heard from a resident who has chosen to leave Seattle, Cole Austin. And that history is lost. With every time that we develop, because there's been little to no emphasis on that education and the history of that area, we're completely losing what once was. And in today's episode, three experts describe how Seattle's past is affecting who is leaving Seattle as it transforms. Political science professor Carl Livingston. When a city uh, begins to reach out to people who are affected by the, the march of change that cannot and should not be stopped, but should be adjusted in and plan for in ways that are healthy and good and fair for everybody. When a city does that, reaches out, I think it shows the country something unique. University of Washington researcher Tim Thomas. Seattle actually faced a lot of similar issues that the rest of the nation saw, and I think that the the FHA loan that started in the 1930s actually played a huge part in that. But also the infrastructure, how the city was built, how businesses were run, things like that kind of led to interesting patterns of residential segregation and transitions. Mount Zion Baptist Church historian, Reverend Dr. Phyllis Beaumonte. African Americans were primarily relegated to a certain area in the city. These three in-depth interviews will give you a better understanding of Seattle's past and what it means for Seattle's future. Now join me as I sit down with Professor Carl Livingston. I'm here at Seattle Central with Professor Carl Livingston, a pastor, professor, lawyer, author, activist and and many more. Carl, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see. I was born in Tacoma, Washington and went away to uh, school at a private religious college. Uh, I'm a little older now, so uh, the dates go way back. You know, you don't want to go back that far. And uh, then um, I finished there and went to law school up at Notre Dame. Uh, I practiced the law a little while, and now I've been up here teaching at Seattle Central College, and that's for the past 28 years here in Seattle, Washington. In the last five years, uh, Seattle's experienced a a boom, a rapid economic and population growth. Uh, What changes, what are the biggest changes that that you've observed? Uh, The biggest changes I've observed are um, Seattle becoming an even more cosmopolitan uh, city with uh, so many people coming here from uh, all over the world. I've also seen uh, the skyline grow a lot, which is a good thing. And uh, seeing the city recover its uh, cultural core and uh, vibrancy downtown, it's a pretty good plan to uh, to keep uh, the downtown from dying as some cities have died. Well, Seattle is just 
this amazing cultural uh, resource and place and center now. But I've also seen, and and this is sad for for me and people like me and those that love diversity, I've seen diversity of the African-Americans that are the descendants of slaves and segregation. I've seen that percentage go down. Wonderfully, uh, the East African percentage has only increased but the uh, African-Americans who have been here going all the way back to the 1800s, their percentage is decreasing as many of them are being forced down to Kent, Federway, Auburn, and Tacoma and beyond. How does it affect you personally to see a community migrating out of Seattle and into some of the southern areas? Uh, well, I um, have uh, many, many, many friends that I know that... Uh, have had to um, leave the city. Um, I myself uh, first started in a new home outside the city in the southernmost part of uh, King County. It was it was the unincorporated Covington area when I first got my home. Now it's just the city of Covington. I'm back in. I've been in Seattle for the longer period, but I may myself have to leave. Um, I uh, grew up in Tacoma, and I know folks that uh, used to be able to live in the hilltop area of Tacoma, and they've been forced out either farther south uh, of Tacoma or in other places like Auburn. And so I've seen this pattern of gentrification, whether in Seattle or Tacoma and in the cities in the United States of America where I've traveled, like Memphis, Tennessee. And so it has directly affected me. It has affected family members in Tacoma, and it's affected friends of mine in Seattle. And what do you think people who are not part of the African-American community uh, but live in Seattle, what are they losing with this migration? First of all, um, they're losing the people who are the actual persons or the descendants of the persons for whom many of our monuments are named. Uh, there is, uh, uh, there's the Martin Luther King Memorial just south of the central area. Well, the people that helped found that, many of them have had to leave. There's Douglas Truth Library or the uh, Odessa Brown Clinic that's also in the central area. And so these, these monuments become kind of hollow monuments uh, to a time that used to be where there was this vibrant uh, community of African-Americans who are no longer there. And uh, uh, they used to have to be African-Americans in the central area uh, by uh, covenants and restrictions and redlining and all, uh, forcing them to move out of the central area before, in better economic times, they could move in other districts and neighborhoods in Seattle is robbing Seattle or is, is denying Seattle a type of diversity of uh, uh, people of African-American descent who are the descendants of uh, slaves and segregation. And um, I think it makes Seattle a little less what it used to be. So, and I want to make one other quick point. When a city uh, begins to reach out to people who are affected by uh, modernity and affected by the, the, the march of change that cannot and should not be stopped, but should be adjusted in, and planned for in ways that are healthy and good and fair for everybody. When a city does that, reaches out, I think it shows the country something unique. 
that we can have change in ways that's humane. We can, we can develop in ways that's sensitive to human beings. And um, it reminds me of the song from the 60s that says, what the world needs now, love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. And the world also needs more humanity. It's one of the things that there's just too little of. And sometimes we act like change is, exists for itself. It just happens. What can you do? No, you can do a lot of things when you're wise and planning people. So I think we should do that and send a wonderful signal just as we sent the wonderful signal in the very early 60s by voluntarily diversifying the Yesler Terrace uh, housing complex and being the first major city in the country that did something like that. What is the city doing or what has the city done in recent memory that is leading to Seattle losing its African-American community members? Well, basically what I believe we have done is we have actually planned for a lot of the changes that we're getting, and we've planned it in a way in which it was not sensitive and, and humane towards people of darker color, especially the descendants of slaves and segregation, uh, those uh, segregated against. Um, there have been meetings that go all the way back to the 1980s of various groups here and there. They've been meeting and planning, or just downtown. They've been meeting and planning, but they have not met and planned in ways that uh, from the very beginning uh, would ensure uh, a healthy percentage of, of African-Americans and people most affected like them could remain in communities. And, um, and so... They basically got what they planned for, which is wonderful, wonderful new communities uh, that do have diversity, but they have a new kind of diversity that uh, planned around or planned against people of, of darker color being there. Looking back, what can you say might cause the difference in the economic success and the ability to stay here in Seattle? What's what's causing it is the um, is the very very um, debilitating uh, corrosive effect of uh, well intentional discrimination on one hand, and then institutional discrimination on the other hand. And over time, it begins to wear people down. Uh, it's not that a people have no idea how to launch businesses or that. A lot of times, they will have a history of having done that. African Americans, in fact, fresh out of uh, slavery. Uh, have examples of what they were doing in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was uh, called the Wall Street uh, of the West for the black community back in the 1900, 1910, all the way up to the major riot of 1921. African-Americans, even up in Seattle, we had such a thriving African-American community in Seattle. Uh, but over time, uh, over, over a generation or so, the difficulty to hold on to uh, the, the, the progress and, and entrepreneurship uh, against the odds, against the, the headwinds, begins to kind of grind down uh, to a halt and then move backwards some of the most uh, determined and hardworking and entre entrepreneurial people. In the last five years, Seattle's changed quite a bit in terms of the African-American community and the migration south, and from your perspective, how do these last five years compare to earlier times in your, in your life here in Seattle? Well, uh, 
you know, these last, uh, I think it's larger, longer than five years, although uh, it, you really need to go to the uh, recession, the Great Recession, 2008, to uh, compare that period as one of the worst, one of the worst periods, been really, really tough. But, but, it, but the, what I'm getting ready to say about it really spans a longer period of time. You know, really the Reagan days forward. The Reagan, that, that 1981 forward, it, things begin to turn for African Americans. Okay, so the situation from 19, um, about 1960 roughly, uh, really the situation from about 1965 uh, with, with the 1964 Civil Rights Act 1965 Voting Rights Act and 1968 Civil Rights Act beginning to kick in uh, and all the way up to about 19 about 1980 roughly was one in which African Americans were uh, increasing in their educational attainment and their uh, economic attainment at a rate at a rate that if plotted um, and extended uh, would have equaled that of whites' educational and economic attainment somewhere between 2000 and 2020. That's the cost. That's the cost. The gap now between whites and African-Americans and people of darkest color uh, today uh, is the cost of what happened as a result of the Southern strategy kicking in in a Reagan, Clinton, Bush, and Obama forms. Then came the recession of 2008, and no group suffered more in that recession than, than African Americans. But we can't get people to care enough to stop the country. State of Washington should have especially stopped because we had a a, a very thorough review by our leading uh, legal professionals at every level in this state. And in 2011, they produced a report called the Preliminary, uh, Re uh, Preliminary Report on Race and Criminal Justice in the State of Washington. Anybody can get it. It should have transformed the state. It concluded that Washington State's legal system, its criminal justice system, is institutionally racist at all levels. And and we should expect that if police, prosecutors, judges, prison officials are institutionally racist, then it's quite likely that teachers and accountants and mayors and others are too. And it and 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 it would have been a great time to stop and, and really kind of figure out what did it, it People don't care that much. I've been screaming about, well, I guess I haven't been doing everything I can do. So I'm partly at fault too. But I've been trying to talk it up so that it doesn't die on the vine. Uh, because a lot of times when we're doing stuff without studies and reports, people go, yeah, but you don't have a study or report. Well, we got one on this. It's expensive to do them, but we got one now and nothing's happening. So now many of the people that you've just supposed are institutionally racist uh -huh. would self-identify as not racist. Very true. So how do you resolve what they believe about themselves and what you are claiming this study is revealing about them? Well, first of all, uh, institutional, race, institutional racism accepts that people may not be personally racist. They may not be individually racist. 
so that's the first point I want to make. Uh, being able, uh, establishing that there's institutional racism only means that the institutions are uh, working in a way that achieves a racial effect, but it may be unintentional. So uh, I recognize that that study that I just raised does not say Washingtonians are intentionally racist and individually racist. I recognize that Washingtonians here are better uh, in terms of race than, than other areas in the country, especially the South. And I, I, I understand that we're a lot better as a country than we used to be 50 years ago. Uh, I give Seattle and um, mainly Western Washington credit for the progress that we have made. But Seattle and Washington have to recognize that in 1980, amongst cities in the United States of America, Seattle was number one in the incarceration of African-Americans relative to their percentage in the population. And that's always the big consideration. Not the overall number, the gross numbers, but the, but the percentage of something relative to their percentage in the population. Seattle was the worst. Seattle was the worst. And state of Washington, I believe. Uh, now we're better. We're like in the worst 25 out of 50 states or the worst 20. And although that's better, that's better. We could do much better than that because I think we care a little bit more than some places do. But I remember somebody saying one time that indifference can be worse than hatred because at least hatred feels. And if you can turn haters uh, from their hatred, sometimes it could lead them to love faster than those who just don't feel, who are just indifferent, uh, narcissistic, individualistic, me, myself, and I. And maybe Washington's challenge is that it's too me, myself, and I, too narcissistic, too individualistic here. It may be harder to make real deep change here than a place like the South. And so you're a political science professor, and many people here think of Seattle as a very liberal, forward, progressive city. Can you share anything, anything that stands out in Seattle or the state of Washington's uh, treatment or policies towards African Americans that stand out either positively or negatively historically? I think that it was wonderful that we... Uh picked Norm Rice as mayor, and then um, we picked uh, a governor, Gary Locke. Those were great things. Um, I think it's good, the progress we've made in the LGBTQA lifestyle. Uh, I'm not in that lifestyle, but I, I believe it's good when any group begins to achieve civil civil liberties and civil rights. Um, we, can, we can applaud those kinds of things. Um, I think that um, we have done a pretty good job like in naming the county, Martin Luther King County. I think we're the only uh, governmental jurisdiction in the country out of the 84,000 or so governmental jurisdictions that uh, is named after Martin Luther King. And then we have a fantastic 
uh, uh, symbol the uh, for it. It just is compelling to me every time I see that. And then if you put all together George Washington, uh, Martin Luther King, and then Chief Seattle, it's just... It's just an impressive list, you know. So um, there's just there's some some things that we have done right. Uh, some big things we've done right. I would rather be here than any other state in the country, and it's not just because of the mountain and the greenery and all. I feel safer in the state of Washington. I feel like this is a better place for my children to be raised, and. Um, I trust more the people who don't look like me in this place. So I, I want to give Washington credit for all of those things. Um, I just want us to do better. And looking forward, if you could ask the city something of what they could do to make sure that we don't lose more of the, the African-American population and, and maybe even reverse the trend where, what would you ask for? What would you say? We can do big things. We, we have a history of doing big things. We revitalized and built up, we doubled and doubled again the skyline of Seattle and over the past uh, 35 years and something like that is happening right now in Bellevue. We can do big things and even some human things. We're, we're a place that has uh, improved our environment in wonderful ways so that now you can look at the bottom of uh, Lake uh, Washington from the shore and and uh, you can look at Puget Sound and it's gotten better. The air has gotten better. We can do big things that make our place more human. And I'm asking that we take that same ingenuity, resolve, forward thinking and apply it to the people who have caught the early buses like Jesse Jackson would say, from can't see in the morning and the late bus home at can't see at night and whose music so many people like to listen to, uh, who um, have had a history of working in people's homes like the movie The Help Shows and uh, who are behind, uh, who are the, uh, the humanity behind many of the monuments that dot uh, some of our places like the Central Area of Seattle and, and the Hilltop Bear of Tacoma and care about their plight. We are struggling. We are hungry. We are becoming even more of a huddled mass, uh, a set of masses. And uh, we, we need more concern from our own people. And uh, we're struggling. Many of us don't want to leave places like Seattle. Uh, but economics force us out and wise policy could bring us back. And if you can get a message out to somebody who is not African-American, but wants to make sure Seattle maintains it, itself as a place for African-Americans to thrive, what would you tell just a resident of Seattle what they can do to help reverse this trend? Uh, I would say that uh, what you could do to help reverse this trend is to... Uh, kind of note certain of the things that I'm saying and others are saying and go check it out. Go see if it's true. Do your own research. Um, look, Maybe look at some places you wouldn't normally look. Um, uh, go and check um, with uh, 
uh, certain of the professors that are teaching on uh, race and 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 gender and and go check um, some of the historians like Quintard Taylor. He's one of the best in the country at University of Washington. And it can just, just spend a little time educating yourself. Get a chance to go look at that report, uh, the prim- preliminary report on race and criminal justice in the state of Washington by every major legal professional in the state. And think about our wonderful region. And then once you learn more about it, talk to the people you know. Not Don't beat them down. Don't beat them over the head. Just give them a little bit. It's kind of like concentrated lemonade. It's just a little bit, you know, just a little bit. A little bit at a time goes a long way. And talk about it. Bring it to your workplace. And there'll be chances to say a little bit or do a little bit. Wherever you're influential, you can use that influence to tell the story and to see if you can't shift things a little bit more. Write a letter to the editor. Uh, Join... um, associations that are directly trying to impact this situation, like the Urban League. Uh, And lastly, vote for people that you feel, uh, especially locally, know about this and care about this. You can make a difference. Please know that um, it looks from the numbers that we're getting that Seattle is set to become uh, one of the three or so, if not the number one, uh, whitest uh, city, or at least non-African-American cities. That's a uh, population over 100,000. Or, I'm sorry, population over about uh, 500,000. In the United States of America, so we're talking about larger cities, but one of the whitest. Now, we were always a little higher on that because... You know, we we're up here in the north and uh, but we are headed to become that even more than we used to be. And I just make an appeal as one of your residents to let's uh, let's at least hold on to the percentages that we had around 1990. And um, uh, it would mean a lot to people like me. Uh, We need you. What would that mean to you personally if you were able to have more african-americans in this city if i had more african-americans in this city uh it it would be an exciting thing because we'd have more of a neighborhood uh just having a presence sometimes it's kind of tough you know when you don't see very many people who look like you it makes it hard for the churches and it makes it hard for your other nonprofit organizations to survive because they won't have the membership or the the um support financially to hold on to whatever it is that they have and uh so so it'll make it less lonely for me and it will make it uh you know i'll feel a little little less a stranger any concluding thoughts on growth in seattle and its future yeah my concluding thought is simply that uh even though this may have sound very very negative i'm positive about seattle and i'm positive about king county i want to end on a positive note i just feel like uh we are a place that um uh, is doing better than other regions are uh i know there are people that will argue with me from my own community that will argue with me over these these points but this is how i feel about it i i uh i appreciate respect and have a love for this region 
And, uh, you know, I not only want to be a greener person than I've been before and a, a person that's concerned about all people's plight and movement. That includes even European-Americans. Uh, every, everybody has a story and a, and a journey. And um, it's important for all of us to listen to each other and to see what we can do to partner to improve everybody's lot as we're doing most to help ourselves. And I just uh, would rather be here than, than anywhere else. And I want to live my days making this the best possible place for everybody. Carl, thank you very much for your time and perspective. I really enjoyed meeting you and hearing your thoughts today. Thank you. A University of Washington researcher has dedicated countless hours to studying Seattle's migration patterns going back more than a century. To understand how the demographics of Seattle has changed over the years, join me as I sit down with Tim Thomas. I'm here at the University of Washington with Tim Thomas. Tim is a doctoral student in the sociology department and a National Science Foundation research fellow. Tim, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. So, Tim, why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? So, I... Uh kind of a non-traditional academic student. I started out as a land surveyor, actually, for eight and a half years. Had a chance to go to college for the first time uh, back in 2005, and sociology just really explained a lot about the world that I had seen. I grew up in the South, and that kind of led me on a path of getting into demography, trying to enumerate populations, especially populations that are unknown. And one of the big research projects that I kind of started working out on was uh, how uh, where you live impacts your opportunities. So I got really big into spatial analysis. And um, from there, I'm working on my uh, dissertation. And it kind of speaks to this concept of about gentrification, how it impacts housing, who it impacts. And I'm looking specifically at like neighborhood associations to evictions. So why would that, you know, why would certain areas have more clustering of evictions versus others? And uh, also looking at migration patterns. Uh, I've done a lot of work on how uh, different groups are kind of dividing across the Puget Sound region. What's really interesting is that the history of Seattle really de- like helps us understand how we got to this place. Um, it's it's an interesting story. Seattle actually faced a lot of similar issues that the rest of the nation saw. And I think that the Federal Housing Authority, uh, the loan, the FHA loan that started in the 1930s actually played a huge part in that. But also the infrastructure, how the city was built, how businesses were run, things like that kind of led to interesting patterns of residential segregation and transitions. Tell me a little bit about historically where different ethnic groups or cultural groups have migrated within Seattle. What's interesting is that in about the 1920s, um, there was a strong Asian population that ha- was here, and a very small African American population. Of course, it was mostly white. The way that the reason why I'm mentioning back then is like transportation helped divide and segregate places. FHA loan then led to uh, housing covenants that allowed whites to move, live in certain areas, whereas African Americans and Asians were not allowed to live in certain areas. That led to high clustering, especially down in the South uh, Seattle area, like the Rainier Beach area. Uh, when the Japanese internment happened, that broke up the segregated Asian population, allowing African Americans actually to move in during wartime uh, manufacturing, and that's when they were migrating here. So there's this huge migration of African Americans during that time. Because of the housing covenants, that did not allow them to really live in North Seattle, 
or any other where else. They could live where Asians were living and uh, other groups. And after the internment, uh, Asian Americans ended up kind of spreading along Rainier Beach, kind of creating our current international district. The central district that we knew is like mostly of uh, black Seattle. Um, that area really formed, started forming, especially through the 40s to the 60s. And what's interesting is that a lot of African-Americans weren't allowed to buy because there were racial divisions and FHA loans and all these other kind of redlining and banking and all these other kind of uh, divisions preventing them from participating in uh, homeownership. So if you fast forward to the 1980s, you see this massively segregated black population in the Central District, Asian population uh, along Rainier Beach. And then over the next 40 years, there's this disappearance of the black population. And you start seeing them migrating south towards Renton, which were traditionally farmlands, uh, mostly white areas. And the reasons for that migration that happened, you know, I think there's somewhat of a culmination between the war on drugs kind of impacting a lot of black communities, uh, separating families, different things like that. Uh, most African-Americans rent today uh, between 2010-2014, about 60% of the black population rents versus uh, about 20% of the white population, 20 or 30%, and the Asian population's around, hovering around 30% too. So when you rent, you're a little more vulnerable to displacement or rapid moves or unwanted moves. So you see this population over 40 years from 1980 to today transitioning down south. And of course, we all know that uh, South Seattle seen a massive increase in gentrification, uh, rising rents, different things like that, redevelopment that's attracted certain people to move to these areas. And that just kind of raises the cost and it kind of impacts like who's able to maintain homeownership or housing in those locations. So in the last five years, as Seattle's grown rapidly, is there any pattern of what ethnic group is migrating out of Seattle? I would say that it's somewhat divided along class lines, but those class lines are also divided along racial lines. So I, I would say that the, the African-American population is moving down south more than uh, most other populations. Uh, the Asian population usually is moving towards the east side, um, but definitely they're still maintaining and clustering within the south side. Uh, but Hispanic population is also moving down south. They never really had a strong foothold in the city of Seattle within the Seattle limits, but they're moving uh, down south and also up north as well, where housing is a lot more affordable. And traditionally, these are groups that have faced a lot more poverty and a lot more uh, lower incomes. And that comes from, you know, historical exclusions from different kind of markets and different kind of education. So generations have grown up in, you know, difficult neighborhoods and difficult school systems, not allowing them to participate. Can you describe historically some of the policies that the Seattle of yesterday used to have that maybe has led to this migration that's happening now? So I think the biggest historical, uh, I would say the biggest historical policies that have impacted our patterns of uh, segregation migration in Seattle goes back to the early 1930s with the FHA loan. Um, basically not allowing certain groups uh, to live in certain parts of the neighborhood that thrived throughout time while segregating them in poorer neighborhoods that, you know, um, that 
we're disinvested, uh, highly disadvantaged. There's a lot of research that says if you live in poor neighborhoods, your health declines, your education declines, your income declines, just a whole host of issues. Can you describe further for people who aren't familiar with the FHA loan and how that could affect somebody, uh, get more specifics as to what exactly that meant for these populations? Yeah. The FHA loan was developed in the 1930s to help bring America out of the uh, Depression. And uh, post-World War II, uh, a lot of uh, folks, families were able to buy houses and pay a monthly mortgage that was cheaper than rent. The problem is that uh, credit uh, creditors, lenders, uh, felt that it was important to uh, kind of protect their investment. And to protect their investment, they wanted to make sure that they were investing in good neighborhoods. Well, they decided to draw some racial lines and say that, you know, uh, inner, inner city neighborhoods were bad. You know, they weren't going to accrue as much as, say, the suburbanization, which was a huge push during that time. Um, they, uh, they decided to basically uh, prevent lending in certain areas that happened to be uh, African-American communities. There's actually an interesting um, uh, study that just re- recently came out about redlining about areas where literally they would say that these areas are going to decline or these areas are not investable. They're horrible areas. And these happen to be falling along uh, black uh, neighborhoods. So then why couldn't black families then move to the North Seattle or to other parts of Seattle where they were not in decline? So part of the FHA loan system was to develop what they called housing covenants. And literally, there were like charters in the community that said no uh, person of, you know, who was Asian or African American. In fact, uh, Ennis Arden up north and Shoreline had one. You know, no hogs were allowed. So they had these like really strict rules. But within those rules, they divided along uh, a racial lines saying, you know, no African Americans or no black. And they used the N-word more fluently in that. And there were over 400 housing covenants across Seattle. So uh, with that distribution, that's kind of a more formal way of controlling who lived where. There was also a lot of informal ways of controlling who lived where uh, due to uh, informal policing uh, all the way to community members protesting African-Americans moving in. So from that time, you had, uh, you know, only a few areas that African-Americans could live within Seattle. Uh, that led to uh, kind of a, and that this is something that, that happened across all, all across the nation in a lot of cities. So then you started having this concentration of disinvested communities that happened to be black. And uh, they wanted to invest in their community, but banks wouldn't allow them. So redlining forms, banks decided what was a good area, a bad area versus not. And the housing covenants really helped build that. Can you walk us through the history of the housing covenants? You know, to be honest with you, they were racialized. Uh, There was a strong uh, understanding that certain groups just were worse than others. And that actually was evident in Seattle as well. Um, Part of it, you know, the the principle that a lot of people use was they were trying to protect their investment. And so this concept of an investment declining because African-Americans were nearby is an incredibly racialized issue. Um, and, you know, there was why would an investment decline? Well, they would say that crime would increase. Uh, they would say that the neighborhood would start just getting worse. They would say that people would just start, you know, getting trashier. 
And so they used evidence of concentrated areas with concentrated poverty to uh, to suggest that, you know, these folks basically were subhuman. And those were actually written in some of the laws. Uh, and, you know, this was during the time when the eugenics movement was kicking around and a lot of people were trying to define, like, whether whites were a better species than non-whites. The history in which the housing covenants were formed comes from these these ideologies, these these senses that, you know, oh, we just don't want to live in these certain areas. And a lot of the research that we do today is trying to parse out, okay, well, is it just an economic issue that, you know, people are separated? And a lot of the research says, no, it's actually more discriminatory. Some people say it's preferences. But in reality, uh, you know, there's just this strong discriminatory effect that happens. So banks reinforce that by saying, like, okay, you won't see a lot of appreciation in these certain areas because, you know, it's it's a non-white area. And so that kind of reinforced a lot of these ideologies. And so housing covenants, under the guise of protecting their investments, uh, segregated themselves into different parts of Seattle. And when were these covenants lifted? Interestingly enough, they were deemed illegal decades ago. But one of the last housing covenants, I believe, in Seattle was changed, like the language was changed around 2006. While it wasn't enforced, and it was illegal not to enforce them, there's you know little laws to actually change the, the language of these things. And I'm sure that many of the people that lived in this area weren't uh, enforcing them. But still, the fact that that language was still there is uh, pretty harmful. And it's interesting how the legacy of these uh, kind of historical movements and, and ideas about uh, housing and, and who can live where is still evident today. If you look at a, a map of, uh, there's an interesting website that if you basically Google race.map, it shows different racial groups in different areas. And what's interesting is that if you look and you zoom in on Seattle, just like you would on Google Maps, it shows little dots, different colors for different racial groups. You'll see a strong concentration, a huge divide of where whites live and where African-Americans, Asian and Hispanic live. And all that's due to history. And a lot of that is, is tied really closely to housing. Were there any other laws or practices that uh, led to this segregation in Seattle? In terms of laws and practices, there were a lot of informal practices that happened. Uh, there was definitely, you know, uh, anti-African-American, anti-Asian uh, rhetoric. Uh, neighbors were just awful to each other. The things that we heard about in the 60s was being seen here in Seattle, for sure. There's also this uh, over-policing that we see today in black communities. That was even more exponential in the past. So there's kind of just this assumption that crime exists in uh, black neighborhoods more than white neighborhoods. And if there's any sort of uh, encroachment of African-Americans into white neighborhoods, then you'll see uh, a lot more policing going on. Can you please draw the connection between the historical redlining and FHA loans and the covenants in Seattle and the current uh, disproportionate migration. Migration usually takes a long time, and the first massive migration that happened for African Americans, in particular, was during uh, you know the the wartime manufacturing boom. Boeing was really strong here; that brought a lot of African Americans to the Seattle area. In fact, that's probably where the bulk of you know those that lived in this area for a long time. That's where they. That's when they came, and then it was about 1980s. Um, so they were resigned to live in, in mostly the central district, South Seattle, where housing covenants were a lot looser. 
um, closer to downtown. At that time, you know, urban areas were less desirable as they are today. And so that concentration, the housing covenants kind of directing where they were, the Japanese internment allowing African-Americans to move in certain parts of the Seattle area, that kind of created the central district that we know of. And that was really strong up until about 1980s. So in the 1980s, you saw the uh, some block groups. So um, a census-defined boundary, one of them is a block group. And some of those block groups were 90% black. Uh, fast forward to 2010, those same block groups are about 20% black. Between 1980 and 2010 was the big, where the biggest decline happened and a large increase in uh, South King County. A lot of that was tied to, you know, the war on drugs uh, had a massive impact because um, those areas were targeted and it kind of kind of perpetuated. There's a lot of crime that was going on in those areas. At that time, too, like Columbia City was trying to find reinvestment, too. The fact that cert those certain neighborhoods were unable to gain loans to reinvest in their own neighborhoods themselves kind of led to some of the, the decline in some of the, the non-white neighborhoods. So, you know, more and more you're seeing white neighborhoods being able to achieve uh, better uh, uh, property, better, better investment, better loans. Um, and then basically from that point on, we start seeing uh, this kind of migration. So I do a lot of spatial analysis and I have some maps that kind of show that the concentration is declining and it's starting to increase in South King County at the same time. That's when gentrification started to happen. Uh, the central district in particular was uh, not super favorable until a lot of the, the tech boom kind of happened. And that's when we see um, kind of the history of poverty and the history of declines in the neighborhood really taken an impact because the last great place to live that was close to downtown near the I-90 and 520 corridors was the Central District. So uh, that's when you start seeing people moving into those neighborhoods, kind of getting rid of a lot of the racial uh, their racial biases and buying cheap housing and reinvesting in those areas. So Gentrification tends to start. There's a good book by Loretta Lee's uh, called Gentrification. She quotes, you know, there's like a four-stage process. I would say that Central District's kind of facing stage three, where there's some risky investment, maybe pushing more towards stage four. And the reason why they're able to do that is because uh, pioneers, gentrifying pioneers, were able to move into those areas. And it started to turn somewhat white in, in those uh, neighborhoods. And from there, that you know, even though racialized uh, uh, lending was banned federally, we're still seeing evidence of like wherever uh, gentrification kind of happens, we're starting to see investment. So the money kind of follows those kind of investments. You've done a lot of research on the history of Seattle. Are, are there any lessons from Seattle's past that we could take as we build a brighter future? I mean, there's a lot of things that we did that we took the teeth out of certain policies and certain regulations that would have helped uh, equalize the situation. I mean, I think, you know, the Federal Housing Act, uh, as well as the uh, GI Bill, I think those, those two historical components had a really good opportunity to bring equity, uh, not just equality, but equity 
amongst uh, certain groups, uh, white and non-white. And I think that because of the racialized nature of lending that happened at that time, I mean, it was written in the books that a lot of people couldn't really participate in the market that built the middle class in America, trying to enforce legislation that leads to an equal opportunity for people to participate in uh, the, the building of the economy. So if we think about what is the current economy that's dominating Seattle, quickly you can go to the tech boom. Any concluding thoughts? You know, Seattle has a unique geography. We have a lot of uniqueness in a lot of different ways, culturally, geographically. We have a lot of things that can divide us. Uh, and I think that that makes it really difficult uh, where we see divisions in neighborhoods that are very small. And I think that it's important for us to understand those divisions and understand and reach out and interact with uh, each other a little bit more if we're going to see any kind of like cohesion um, and, and just you know read the history books, read how the city was made. And what we really need is to try and interact with each other if we can. Tim? Thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate you sharing your perspective and your insights from your research. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure. My next guest lived through the policies described by Tim Thomas. She is the historian at the Mount Zion Baptist Church and had lived in Seattle for decades prior to moving to Renton. To hear her perspective on Seattle's historical policies and the impact on her community, join me as I sit down with Reverend Dr. Phyllis Beaumonte. I am here with the Reverend Dr. Phyllis Ratcliffe-Bomonti. She is the historian at the Mount Zion Baptist Church. Uh, Reverend, thank you for joining me today. You're quite welcome. Why don't we start by having you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I was born and raised here in Seattle, Washington. My parents came, uh, my mother was four, from Wichita, uh, Kansas, and my dad came when he was about 16 um, from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so I was probably the first one to graduate from a college in my family. What did that mean to your family at that time? Well, my mother had passed. My dad, who lived to be 98, he was very proud of me, and so were my siblings. Um, they're very, very proud of me. What did it mean to me personally? It was um, somewhat amazing to me that God had blessed me to have those doors open for me and for me to be prepared to walk through them and to actually to be successful. And so University of Washington has really been a, um, it was, how can I put it, it was there at a time when actually I had just resigned myself to just doing what I could do. Um, but it, it enabled me to go forward and to um, get an education over and above, so to speak. And during that time, growing up in Seattle was, was um, a kind of a, a happy time for us uh, because African Americans were primarily relegated to a certain area in the city. So can you describe that a little bit? How, how, what do you mean by relegated? Well, there, there were strict uh, codes, so to speak, uh, which uh, unfortunately 
uh, had some de facto segregation involved. Uh, not blatant segregation, but it, segregation in fact, so to speak, where to the, um, to the north of Seattle, African Americans very seldom were offered or had the opportunity to buy homes, let's just say north of uh, John or Thomas Street. To the south, African Americans were able to buy homes up to Lane Street in that area. And then to the east, on the east side, um, they were, we were able to buy homes, so to speak, in around 25th or 26th. And then to the west, down to maybe uh, 12th Avenue. When you say you couldn't buy a home in those areas, how did that? How did you become aware of these boundaries? Because I, I, I lived there. You know, I lived in Seattle. I saw all of this. You know, I grew up in the Yesler Terrace. Um, we had, we had, um, as a little girl, I can vaguely remember, but we were living, we were renting different homes, you know, and then we were at the Yesler Terrace, which was the first community-type building for people who not weren't, they weren't on um, welfare, but they were low-income people. And so, just to backtrack a little bit, I grew up in the Yesler Terrace until my dad was able to buy a home in the central area. And so, you didn't see African-American houses or families beyond these borders that I just uh, shared with you. Did your father try to buy no, us? No, no, no. No, they didn't look, you know. And it wasn't until in the 50s, I believe, that they were able to um, have those codes eliminated where people could buy homes wherever they wanted. Now, of course, Broadmoor is a different ball game. That's a gated community, and I don't think there are any African Americans living in Broadmoor. What did it feel like to, as you said in your own words, be relegated to a certain part of Seattle? Well, I don't think it was, when I say relegated, um, there are a lot of connotations to that word. And so just so that there is a synonym to go with it, African Americans were not sold homes outside of their those boundaries. And so we were very homogeneous. You know, we had our own businesses. Uh, in the central area, the central part of the city. Uh, we had, uh, uh, you know, we we were just happy to the point where we weren't really subjected to any racism until we went downtown maybe or we went other places. Uh, bear in mind that um, going to Garfield High School later on, you know, uh, you, because of the, the geographical school boundaries, I went to school with the president, son of the uh, Boeing company, Tony Allen. And then I went, you know, there were a lot of very wealthy white kids that went to Garfield at the time, and we were just like a big family. And so I didn't grow up so much uh, under a lot of directs, uh, uh, insults and things like that. But we 
we were just kind of in the central district, so to speak. And we had a lot of, um, you know, we, we played other uh, high school teams, so to speak, but, and there was a little friction from the Ballard group, the kids out in the Ballard area, uh, and Roosevelt and some of the other high schools. But for the most part, for the most part, we were, we were homogeneous, we were African-Americans, um, we were Seattleites, most of us when we grew up, until the other migration in World War II. And so if you can get a message to young African-Americans who are still in Seattle about what you've learned from history that could help them maintain a foothold in the city and continue to the legacy and the history, what would you say? I try to impress upon them how important history is, number one. Um, history is foundational. Uh, there's an old saying, if you don't know where you've been, how can you know where you're going? It's a rich legacy in history, Mount Zion, I mean, African-American history. Um, I would hope that young people would take advantage of the opportunities to go to the African-American Museum, which is over on Atlantic Street in Massachusetts, and um, keep in touch with the Washington State Black Heritage Society, which has a compilation of history dating as far back as 1850. Um, a lot of people don't feel that history is important, but it is. And who knows, in the next 20 or 25 years, there may not even be anything um, uh, resembling the fact that African Americans, that was where they had their establishments. Nothing. And if history's not maintained, they will not know anything about that. And so history is important. And I think the emphasis on Washington state history, which is required for every child in the Seattle public schools, that they would include African-American history in Seattle, and certainly the contributions that African-Americans have made. Reverend, thank you very much for your time and perspective. I really appreciate hearing your voice today. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, or post to the Seattle Growth Podcast Facebook page. I love hearing your perspectives. We have just one episode left in the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast. After that, I'll be developing season four, exploring the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. As I reflect on the three seasons so far, I have been very impressed, humbled, and inspired by the community of interviewees and listeners. What started out as a curiosity has grown into a reliable source for diverse perspectives on the challenges and opportunities in our community. I've noticed consistent themes across podcast guests and listeners. First and foremost, you are community-minded and want what's best for our city. Now, this doesn't mean all of you agree on whether growth is good or bad or in between, or whether you all agree on where a basketball arena should go or where to site new real estate development, but it does mean you are engaged and ignited. And secondly, the challenges we face together are real, but not insurmountable. And third, every great change starts with finding common ground and taking a small step forward. I look forward to learning more about the great impact of your small steps forward in improving our city. I hope you'll join me next week. Until then, I'm Jeff Shulman, 
And I thank you for joining me on this journey in the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast.